0: Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare Short-Term Plans at uh1.com.
1: A wide half volley gives Strauss the chance to open his arms, punch the air. He's got a hundred in his maiden test match innings.
0: Oh, what a catch!
1: What a catch from Andrew Strauss. 24 years of pain in Australia
2: beaten at home by England. Andrew Strauss becomes the first England captain to make a hundred in England on his debut as captain. Look at these seas England. 2009, we gain the ashes. Andrew Strauss, born 2nd of March, 1977. Andrew made his first class debut for Middlesex in 1998 before becoming captain in 2002. He made his one day international debut in 2003 and became the second England batsman to score a century at Lord's on his Test debut in 2004. Andrew was part of the victorious 2005 Ashes winning team and he was appointed England captain four years later. Under his leadership, England regained the Ashes in 2009 and held on to them in 2010 11, the first series win on Australian soil for 24 years. In 2011, he led his country to the number one spot in the ICC Test World Rankings for the first time. After captaining England in 50 of his 100 tests and scoring over 7,000 runs, he retired from all forms of cricket in 2012. He joined the England and Wales Cricket Board as director of cricket, but left the role in 2018 to support his wife, Ruth, who was being treated for terminal cancer. And he went on to launch a foundation in her name after her death, in December 2018.
1: Sir Andrew Strauss, what does that feel like still? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it is definitely one of those things that feels odd, and I don't think you ever quite get used to it. And the most amazing thing is how some of the other people view you differently. So people that I know very well... Will come up to me and go, "Can I? Do I need to call you, Sir Andrew?" And whatever, like, there's that sort of reverence to it, which um, I I find quite bizarre, really. But um, look, it's an incredible thing to be recognised, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And and when you go to the palace and you're surrounded by all these people that have, you know, made real contributions in their own particular fields, it's, you know, it does make you deep down feel, maybe I've done something worthwhile there. Yeah, well, we're going to talk over the next hour about
2: a lot of worthwhile things you've done. I want to take you right the way back, if we may, first of all. And, of course, it was South Africa and Johannesburg where you were born.
1: Well, exactly. And, you know, to two South African parents. um, Your dad was a rugby man more than a cricketer. Yeah, he loved his rugby, yeah. (laughs) He did play a bit of cricket, but he was not very good, got to (laughs) be honest. Um, But, he, you know, he loved sport so you know, whether it was rugby, whether it was tennis. And, and I think when you grow up in one of those countries that the climate's good and everyone's outdoors and, and funny enough, when I was growing up in South Africa, those first seven years of my life, you know, there was TV only started at 6 p.m. And it was like one day at 6 p.m. it's English and the next day it's Afrikaans. So TV just wasn't a big part of my life. Um, and so I was out there doing stuff and... Yeah, and I, I suppose as were my sisters, and as were all my mates as well. And then
2: it, you decided to come back here, the family, and uh, your education was going to be quite a normal one. You were going to go to a prep school and then
1: to a, one of our great public schools. Did you board?
2: I did stage? board. Yeah, yeah, I
1: boarded from eleven. Yeah, I mean, when you say it's normal, I, I think that's probably the wrong way to describe it because it, <laughs> it was very privileged, really. And um, I understand the privilege. Yeah. Uh, not that I knew it at the time, because whatever you go through as a kid, you kind of just think is normal. But um, yeah, look, unbelievable opportunities I had there. Great coaching, great facilities, played millions of different sports. L- literally rugby, hockey, football, tennis, rackets, real tennis, like, squash, everything. And... One thing I would say is back in those days, I think it's probably changed a bit now, but what back in those days, when you were playing sport at one of those public schools, it was a recreational, you know, I don't think people were generally focusing on making a career out of their sport. The focus was much more, and it probably still is to a certain degree, on getting good A levels, getting to the right university, getting into the city, all that sort of stuff. So, you know, if you wanted to go down that sport route, you had to kind of do that outside of the school time and focus on it sort of under your own steam a bit.
2: In the end, your choice of university, though, was one that really, at that stage, wanted to sort of unlock the Cambridge-Oxford dominance in sport, and Durham was the perfect place for that.
1: Durham, I think, was the best cricket university. It, you know, Back in the day, it was Oxford and Cambridge, and you think of Atherton and all these guys that came through there. I think by the time I came to university Durham was established as a number one cricket university and and so and it was very strong at rugby and so I was playing both sports and I thought it would be a great place to go but I you know at that stage I was still I had ambitions I thought it would be great to play professional sport but I'd never been part of any sort of academy system or anything like that I mean there weren't those academy systems really in those days but I wasn't part of the the kind of the pathway, I suppose, for either rugby or cricket. So I just went up there, sort of, let's see how I go here. And I started realising, hold on a second, all these other guys in the Durham University first 11 have got county contracts and they've got, all got shiny county track suits and they look great. And are they any better than me? Not, not really, actually. And so I started thinking maybe I should give us a crack
2: and what happened then to make you go for that what was the sort of career path you were thinking of elsewhere sort of one that gave you the opportunity to play some great sport as you were with a work-life balance
1: well look i mean i was doing economics at durham university and so most of my colleagues and friends were you know they were getting on graduate trainee programs for accountancy firms and banks and yeah. legal profession and whatever. So I did have a job offer with one of the accountancy firms. I definitely had a massive itch I wanted to scratch. Sport was always my thing. I always loved sport. I was always good at it. I never thought I was outstanding at it. But I also, you know, like through that Durham experience and once I started playing for Middlesex second team, I thought, oh on a second, you know, these guys, they're pretty decent. They're all good, and some of them are better than me. But I don't see anyone here that is doing anything that I couldn't potentially do in the future. And so, it really kind of motivated me to start treating it professionally. I, up to that point, sport I'd never treated professionally had just been yeah. something I did. And then I started training harder and practicing harder and thinking a bit more about the sport and really challenging myself to become more consistent and. And obviously, you know, you've got to separate yourself from those you're playing with as well. If you're playing county second team, you've got to be better than those that are in the team. So there was a bit of my competitive instinct came through there, I think.
2: And although it was um, much more professional cricket, I guess, than when I was growing up, um, it was still a great lifestyle choice at that stage, wasn't it? As well as everything else, just playing for a county.
1: you got to remember, when, you, when you're leaving university... Most people are leaving with loads of debts, aren't they? Because and they're in the summer holidays, they're working in a bar or something, trying to make ends meet. And there I was playing county cricket in the holidays. We'd come back with a bit of money in the in the bank account, and then first signed my first full time contract with Middlesex when I left university, which was playing cricket for six months and getting well paid for it, relatively, and then spending six months in Australia, like just cruising around Sydney. So you know, it's incredible life, really. And, you know, great people and you're you're mixing with your heroes, you know, the likes of Phil Tufnor and Angus Fraser and Mark Ramprakash and all these guys, Justin Langer, Mike Gatting even. Mm. Um, And these are the guys that I'd grown up watching on TV and I just, you know, I just couldn't believe I was part of that, really.
2: It's a good time to uh, think and talk about Ruth, actually, for this now that you're in Sydney during your winters, enjoying life there. And meeting Ruth first in a bar in Sydney,
1: absolutely, yeah, and a very dodgy bar in Kings Cross. And I probably shouldn't admit that, but um, yeah, Sunday night after a, a day-night international, England were playing Australia, and there was nowhere else to go out. And so, a mate of mine went out and met Ruth and a friend there, and you know, it was just one of those extraordinary things. Ruth is a bit older than me, a bit more worldly just an incredible sort of spirit and presence about her and you know within two or three months we had to sort of decide what we were going to do because you know living on the opposite sides of the world is not an easy thing and so it forced us to think about you know how serious that we wanted this to be and what sacrifices I both of us were willing to 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 pay in order to make it work
2: she was a successful actress at this time
1: yeah exactly and really sort of making her way you know she'd had Mm. some some quite good parts in australian sort of drama shows and whatever and um she's making a couple of films at the time so you know i i I certainly look back and think she made more sacrifices than me she had to spend more time in england than i did and you know when you're trying to audition for parts and you're not in the country then it it becomes difficult but you know I, i think the great thing about Ruth is she was willing to to come over and give it a crack yeah. and just see how it went. You know, she was one of those people that she, she really just loved having a good time yeah. and, you know, coming over to – she got on with people incredibly well. So coming into that cricket world that she knew nothing about whatsoever, um, she sort of made herself really an integral part of that world but straight away.
2: There was a lovely piece, I think, in, in Driving Ambition, you're – Autobiography that you wrote shortly after you retired, where she sort of got off a plane and then went to a party with all the other teammates, girls, and wives straight away. Somebody that obviously has real confidence going into a room.
1: Yeah, I mean, she just has one. She's one of those, well, was one of those remarkable people that um, could just make people feel comfortable and never f- looked uncomfortable herself in any situation. And I think that's what really attracted me to her because I I hate going into a room when I don't like <laughs> know people. Yeah, that's my literally my worst nightmare. And just to see the sort of ease that she had with that, and the the way she could talk to anyone on their level. You know, she was she hated arrogance or people feeling that they're better than other people and whatever. And um, and throughout my career, that was a really important thing actually in, in keeping me grounded when. You know, obviously we had some great times on the creative sure. field and you sort of get sucked up into that sporting world and that celebrity world, and, and she never bought into that.
2: And also would have known and probably, well, I'm, I know has helped you in that her profession was another where you had to take the the deselection, the knocks, uh, and when it's not always about what you uh, haven't actually done.
1: Yeah, exactly. So you're only in control of so much, and I think... Um, I think also for her, just what was important to her was family and friends mm-hmm. and work was a sort of secondary thing. Like, yeah, I, I want to do well in what I'm, whatever I'm doing, but the only thing that's really important is family and friends. And I, obviously we've been through a lot over the last 10 mm-hmm. or 15 years, but I think that, that becomes more and more relevant actually mm-hmm. um, as you get older. It's kind of mm-hmm. like she's absolutely right you know work is a means to an end but what is that end so you've
2: signed your county cricket contract with Middlesex you're now getting noticed as well and there's England not too far on the horizon actually is it and uh, a first test that you were sort of thrown into in many ways
1: I mean I made my debut quite late I was 27 and I had done it i suppose the hard way in the sense that i'd done it on the back of consistent performances for middlesex i wasn't one of these sort of golden boys that was plucked on potential but when my chance did come on the back of michael vaughan getting injured in the nets before the start of the new zealand series i just everything was the stars were aligned you know i was going to make my debut on my home ground a ground that i obviously knew very well i was in great form felt fantastic and it was a shot to nothing. It was one of those situations where, you know, Vaughn probably going to come back in the next test. So I've got mm. one test. Let's go out and give it a crack and see what happens. And
2: oh. yeah, the dream came true. Well, I love that line as well. One glorious day in May. Chris Martin coming into Vol. And you do what you did.
1: I mean, this sounds very cliche, but it is the dream, isn't it? To, you think about it like... One day I want to make my test debut. Not only do I want to do that, I want to be at Lords in front of a full house, and I want to get 100 in my first innings. And everyone's going to be standing up and applauding me. And you know, spine tingling, isn't it? That (laughs) thought, the dream is spine tingling. And then when it actually happens, even it's just it was beyond comprehension for me. Like I just never let myself imagine that that would actually happen. And suddenly. You go from not being in the England team to five days later, you scored a test century at Lords. It was Mm. extraordinary. And, uh, you know, one of my proudest moments because you are stepping into the unknown. You don't know how you're going to react to it. If you allow yourself to think about what might go wrong, it's quite scary as well. Like, you know, there's a lot of people watching you, and there have been a lot of examples of people that have fluffed their lines when they've had the opportunity. So, to be able to stay calm and get through those initial stages and then and then go on and get a hundred yeah it's it's extraordinary it mm-hmm. really was unbelievable.
2: What was that walk like then from the dressing room through the long room out onto the pitch first time with an England
1: well, test cap so i mean we we batted second so we'd fielded first. You know, I didn't sleep a lot that week. I've got to be honest. <laughs> you know, but it was such a like a nervous energy. It was a nervous excitement. It wasn't. I, I wasn't sort of scared or overawed or. I was just really excited about it. Um, But actually, once you start putting your pads on and going through your routine that you've done thousands of times before, it actually just started becoming another game of cricket. And I, the, the, you know, I still remember tapping my bat as Chris Martin was running into bowl about to receive my first ball and i'm thinking to myself well this is different but watch your ball and once i negotiated the first ball then it was kind of like okay let's go yeah I'm it's just another miss. it's another innings absolutely
2: here. and of course it sort of went from there didn't it to start with over those first few years where it became all consuming the cricket side of things really with what you have to do as an international cricketer
1: Yeah, and I remember going out for dinner the night after I got that test century with Ruth and just going, wow, things are going to be very different from here. And little did either of us know how different they were going to be because, you know, you're on the road 250, 300 nights a year. Suddenly I was playing all formats for England, travelling all around the world, which sounds incredibly exotic, and it was because, Mm -hmm. you know, I hadn't toured a lot of these places before. But it, it... certainly changes your relationship and the work bit or the being an england cricketer becomes you Mm. and you know being a husband to ruth and being a mate to my friends is very secondary almost have to be everyone's got to understand that that that's that's the path of the course for the time being it's quite a difficult one that isn't it to get that balance right i mean i one of the
2: the great players that you played with so many times as well andrew flintoff when he, he talked to me about he was andrew and he was Freddie, yeah. and and until he he got it sorted a lot later on in life he was never quite sure which he was but he knew to his friends they still thought he was sort of both of them and he felt slightly sort of i you know i've done so well here i've got to look after all of them as as well as me and um, it became a difficulty for him to, to keep those relationships going in the right way.
1: Yeah, and I think the more you buy into that whole thing of I am Andrew Strauss the cricketer and that, that's reality for me, I think the more dangerous it is for anyone actually mm-hmm. because A, it's not real, and those people that you're hanging around with and those exotic places <laughs> you're going and incredible dinners you're being invited to and whatever, that, that only lasts as long as your career lasts and also, the more you, you think that is you, the, the more you have to lose if it doesn't go right. So it's very easy to start getting quite negative and starting to hang on to that. So, you know, I definitely got lured into that to a certain degree. And, you know, I think Ruth was very good at kind of making sure that I, that, that didn't become me. It was just a part of me. Um, my advice to, to anyone who's in that situation and living the dream is enjoy it, savor it, but it's not real.
2: In that early part of your international career, of course, 2005, there was a home Ashes Test series, wasn't there? Yeah. (laughs) Wow. And what a series. I think that's where I sort of remember the you guys were, there was a piece of you wanted over that particular series from absolutely everybody. And not just the media and the press, but there was no release of the pressure, really. There was
1: no release. um, And also, it was a very... (laughs) sort of stark illustration to me that there was test cricket and there was ashes cricket and those were Mm. two completely separate things (laughs) and um you know bear in mind back in those days that australian team was the great invincible team and no one had got near them for the best part of a decade and you know michael vaughan did a brilliant job duncan fletcher Mm. did a brilliant Mm. job and like come on lads we're just gonna have a crack at these guys and we're not gonna back down and they the pressure's on them because everyone's expecting them to win and so we went out there and committed to it and suddenly we found ourselves in a situation hold on we might be able to win this and that's actually where st- stage fright came in for us a bit because we couldn't quite believe we we're in that situation but just the incredible attention interest support passion that that everyone who followed us showed and that grew out every game it grew and um And so by the end, we were utterly exhausted and, you know, just emotional wrecks because Mm. you're carrying those hopes around with you every day to the ground and every moment of a test match could be pivotal. You're hating the idea of, you know, I might be the guy that drops the catch, that loses Mm. the ashes or whatever. And so it was a level of stress that I'd never experienced Mm. before or since. But then obviously... (laughs) the release and the relief having won and just that incredible yeah. euphoria that followed us everywhere and we were celebrity we were genuinely we were genuinely you know far from a celebrity but y- you know for for that moment we were the hottest ticket in town and you could get into vip areas of nightclubs <laughs> and all that, you know all that sort of stuff um needless to say it kind of completely went all to our heads and <laughs> we sort of retreated back to playing pretty average cricket after that
2: still to come on my sporting life on talk sport
1: i just found myself in a period where i wasn't scoring many runs i was putting pressure on myself i hated the idea of being dropped like increasingly that that was sort of all consuming for me like i just i can't bear the thought of being dropped from the single team the humiliation that's going to come with that
2: my sporting life on talk sport with andrew strauss over the next couple of years as well though you developed and it, as i say i want to dip in and out of things here but it caught up with you didn't mm. it 2007 you were beginning suddenly not to sleep as well as you <sighs> should do and things and you were you were you were wondering what where do i go and what do i do now in some yeah ways. well i
1: think just the, the the sort of reality of being you know on that sort of conveyor belt of continuously going on tour going to india for the first time the second time the third time to sri lanka for the second time to australia being away from home like two young kids Mm. and also suddenly expectation rises you know you played 50 tests for england and you're expected to go and get 100 every time you bat and actually other teams have worked you out a bit at the same time so I just found myself in a period where I wasn't scoring many runs I was putting pressure on myself I hated the idea of being dropped like increasingly that that was sort of all consuming for me like I just I can't bear the thought of being dropped from the England team the humiliation that's going to come with that and needless to say my mindset was all wrong I was all about protecting what I had and not having getting a low score rather than going out and getting good score, if you know mm. what I mean. Mm. And um, it got to a crisis point in New Zealand, yeah. Napier, where it was just one of those situations where it was pretty obvious to everyone that this was do or die. If I didn't get runs in that mm. second innings in Napier, then my test career was certainly stalling for the time being. You know, who knows whether I would have got back or not. And the the incredible irony is that the morning of that innings, I woke up for the first time in probably six months and felt calm and relaxed.
2: You said in the book as well, I, I let it go.
1: Yeah. And I let it go because I just thought, look, the reality is this. You're out of form. You haven't scored a 100 in over a year. You need to score 100 today. The New Zealand attack are all over you like a rash. The reality is you're probably not going to get runs in this game, mm. in this innings. But if this is your last innings for England, then just go out and enjoy it and take it all in and savour it and have no regrets at the end of it and i just i went out and i was so relaxed and calm when i got to the crease you know rather than what people thought i would be which is like gibbering wreck i have to score runs i was just relax, let it go yeah. 177 <laughs> strange game and just shows the value of psychology and being able yes. to shift your mindset which is easier said than yeah known. and I, th- I think
2: that's the important thing is uh, as well because the, one of the other things that you, you did at the, around that time as well and what happened was that you sort of took yourself back, really. Did you? you thought I can't reshape myself at this age? There's no good. I mean, I think it's a bit. You say if you, you know, if you were to ask the likes of both of them or whatever, what you do? Well, well, you just go back and you reshape and you sort it out. Yeah. You know, but in in reality, for most people, it's not. It's not that easy to do that. And so so really what it was that it sort of you you then with that that, bit of that gap, you you got your ambition back again, didn't
1: you? Yeah, I think I uh, so suddenly I felt like, uh, okay, I've got this is a sort of second stage of my career Mm. and I've got to sort of get out of jail free card here. And I'm going to try and reconnect or stay connected with that feeling that I had in Napier for the rest of my career that, Mm. you know, just let it flow. Let's not put myself under too much pressure. Let's accept who I am as a cricketer. You know, I I can't mm. be a Kevin Peterson or Freddie Flintoff or whatever. I, I, I am, have my own game. I have my own limitations, and that's okay. Mm. Just work mm. within that. And also, let's make sure that when I'm off cricket, I'm off cricket, and mm. I'm spending time with my kids and whatever. So I just felt on the, after that, I had a much better balance in my life. I was only playing test cricket for that period of time. I just felt felt mm. good, scoring runs consistently, and then... Fortunately, but I suppose I wasn't expecting it to happen. Then the, the opportunity to captain England came along and then everything got very different from there.
2: Let's just sort of build up there. You mentioned Duncan Fletcher. You had Duncan Fletcher in a great relationship. Peter Moore's a man you respected, although you didn't have quite the same relationship with him. And then Andy Flower, who was made temporary coach at that stage as well, but just a, a really good man.
1: Yeah, so a guy that, um, you know, he got to number one in the world as a batsman playing for Zimbabwe it's not an easy thing to do so he was a guy who was incredibly driven and focused and knew what he wanted as a player and he brought that into the England team as well is like okay if you guys really want to get to number 1 in the world then you got to work for it like it's not just going to happen and so we needed that and then i, I think the great thing for Andy and I is we started at the same time so there was not a senior partner and a junior partner you know we saw ourselves very much as equals and this was our sort of project together and he brought the sort of drive and the focus and the goal orientation and I brought brought a little bit more the guys let's just keep things calm and I was pretty good at the people side Mm. and uh, you know I really looked out for my teammates as captain and so I thought I thought there was quite a nice balance Mm. there between us actually Mm. And with that in mind
2: the um the other part of course you'd you'd understood this there was the celebrity sportsmen the superstars who everybody wanted the piece of that was sort of took them slightly out of the team environment, whether it was cricket or football and and you had one or two of those that you obviously played with along the way and and then that wasn't easy for either side, was it?
1: yeah, so I think a couple of things to say uh... You, yeah, every team has its superstars, and you need your superstars. You Absolutely. need your work, world-class players. It, you know, if you want to get to the best team in the world, you can't afford not to have any world-class players. But I, I always felt like there was a sort of engine room beneath them, and if the engine room wasn't uh, functioning properly, then it doesn't matter how good your superstars are. You're you're not gonna you're not gonna win consistently. So when I look back at that team that I captained, I look at the people like. Paul Collingwood and Matt Pryor and Graham Swan and Alistair Cook. Jonathan Trott, brilliant example of that. He was probably the best example of all.
2: I, I I want you to talk to me about Jonathan Trott there because he played some extraordinary cricket and yet didn't get the sort of headline makers for that cricket, but how important it was for the team at the time.
1: Yeah, exactly. And You, know, you look at his record at number three, you look at the calmness he brought into the role. He was one of those guys that, in the dressing room, people relaxed because you knew that it was going to take a good ball to get him out. He wasn't going to do anything stupid. He was going to get his little bubble and mark his guard out and and just play his way. And he had incredible sort of cocoon of concentration. Like If you mm. were batting with him, don't even try and have a conversation with him because he was in world of trot. Like he just, <laughs> you weren't in his world at all. But incredibly, he didn't want the limelight. You know, he didn't want to be a superstar. And But he, what he loved was scoring runs. That was yeah. his sort of reason for being. And so, you know, I suppose maybe unsurprisingly when the runs dried up for him, mm-hmm. if all you're about is scoring runs, that's where it gets very difficult. And that, that was yeah. a sort of precursor to... To some of the issues he had down the track, yeah,
2: I can understand all of that completely. Let's talk, if we may, about one or two of the superstars. I mean, Kevin Peterson is really the one that we everybody brings to mind and, yeah, and sure. what he did. I mean, just you—you you again talk about that. You know, the first time you'd come across him really was in a county game at Middlesex in a pretty bad tempered affair, I think, wasn't it against Nottinghamshire? Yeah. Was it? Yeah.
1: And, well, yeah. I mean, he was one of these guys that obviously. He carved out a reputation for himself very early on the county scene because he was big and brash and you know, arrogant and took the game to the opposition. And the annoying thing for all of us is he was just very good as well. So <laughs> as much as you gave him some stick, he would shove it back in your face. And he did that all the way through his career. Outrageous talent. By far the most talented cricket I ever played with. I mean, just unbelievable. You know, he batted eight for his school team. Who just? I still can't get my head around that. And... I think for large, large proportions of our time together, Kevin and I got on pretty well. You know, we had that sort of you know, South African roots and and a respect for each other because we kind of came into the team at the same time.
2: And uh, you probably knew his personality more through that than others in that dress Yeah, team.
1: exactly. And, you know, so, I mean, without trying to generalise too much, South Africans can be quite spiky at times and whatever. So I, I sort of gave him quite a lot of latitude. And I, I definitely as captain, I felt it was really important that we didn't try and sort of straight like he had to, We had to give him the the excuse to go out and play his way. Um, and even though that was difficult sometimes because he'd play outrageous shots at the wrong time, you're mm-hmm. like, what are you doing? But that was how he got so many runs in the first place. So, you, you know, I, I think I was very conscious, and especially because I took over as captain when he'd sort of been removed as captain. And exactly. so I was conscious of that relationship and... You know, by and large, I think he dealt with that exceptionally well. Um, But look, it did come to a head at the end, and you know there were all sorts of issues at play. And you know, Kevin had fallen out with the ECB over the IPL, and he wasn't happy in the team. And he went too far. You know, I'm not going to make excuses for him. Went too far, and he did things that I didn't feel well. They were definitely weren't in the interest of the team, in my opinion. And so, you know, I called him out on it, and. And that was the sort of the deterioration of the relationship for a period of time. Mm. But uh, you had a you had a whole team to look after
2: here. I mean, it wasn't just your superstar at that stage, even however much he was he was needed. I mean, there were th- there were the things with the fake KP account, you know, on social media, and then the other things. But he would he he was one of these personalities that if he was feeling great about life, he'd laugh along with the rest of you. But then when it wasn't going right his way, he then attacked the rest of. Uh, yeah,
1: of I it. think I mean. I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, we all knew Kevin well. It wasn't like anything that happened over that period of time we'd never experienced before. But it got out of hand and it got too far. And and I think we all got ourselves in a position where we were sort of too entrenched in our, in our positions, so to speak. And so there was no middle ground there anymore. Um, and there was a lot of emotion around. You think about living in each other's pockets for years on end, like you get to a stage where maybe you lose perspective a bit yeah
2: what was it like to captain england for and win an
1: ashes series well um so you know i always had this impression in my mind that england captains are judged on whether you win ashes series or not and you know rightly or wrongly I, i just think it's the case and so my first Ashes series as captain, I'd only been captain for like nine months or something. I had the bit between my teeth like nothing else. And I was like, this is my moment. And I'm not going to, I tell you what, if Australia are going to beat us, then they're going to have to trample over me because I'm not taking a backward step. And I was in great form. I scored a lot of runs that that series. And actually we just saw the beginnings of a a really good England team Mm. because we, we dug deep and we we won some really important sessions of the play, even though Australia were by far the better team in that 2009 Ashes. Mm. We came through and, and somehow managed to win it on the back of some really quality individuals and some very good performances from our team at the right time. So, yeah, it was an incredible thing, actually. I remember, you know, holding the Ashes, which is such an iconic thing. It is. It? Hold that little urn yes. and, and look at it and go, wow, that this is me yeah. doing that. And then... I just remember going back to our house in Ealing the next day and getting all the papers and reading it and soaking. It all right. it was just fantastic. fantastic. Unfortunately, then you wake up the next day and you're like, right, we're off to India or wherever we are next. Like the international sport, you can't rest in laurels for very long. No. Uh, but those those little moments, if you don't enjoy those, then yeah, you correct. might as well not play. And in then the of course,
2: then of course, in when when you go and win it in Australia, they give you this little glass sort of <laughs> trophy to start with and
1: you said no 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 we where's the where are the ashes well that's right I mean winning in Australia is the holy grail God. you know it's so hard to do and you look at England's team's performances in my lifetime out there mm-hmm. with the exception of Gatting's lot in in 86 I mean we've just been thumped time and time again and and that tour was outstanding I mean. Yeah the performances on that tour were extraordinary and so to win 3-1 and to win th- all three by an innings and then stand up there at the scg and that you know the fifteen thousand barmy army people going mental and all the aussies had left the state it was just brilliant like it just <laughs> you know having spent so much time in australia and getting so much stick off them for years mm-hmm. it was just it was fantastic but then yeah they they, they wanted to give us this glass this <laughs> big glass trophy and i said no 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 look come on it's the ashes we need i need to hold the urn but they didn't have one so they, <laughs> they had to go to like the, the merchandise store and get a sort of a plastic ashes for Brilliant. me to hold up but it didn't take anything away it was mm. that that was I, I think as as England captain that was without doubt my best moment
2: you were thinking where where you were with your career and everything at this stage as well i mean there you are you're you're hitting a pinnacle now and uh, the international career is not coming completely to an end but it's beginning to you know you've done a lot as you say you didn't start the actual international career until you were much later and uh, in the end you decide you're you know what you're going to do andy flower knows what you're going to do but nobody else does in that final your hundredth test match
1: yeah and look i mean that was a complicated time because that was right in the middle of the whole fallout with uh, kp but i'd sort of decided much earlier in the summer that it felt like the right time I felt like I'd achieved everything I wanted to we got to number one in the world you know I knew that if I'd played that summer I'd play a hundred tests and I always wanted to get seven thousand runs it was one of those sort of i don't know it was just a goal that I' set myself early in my career and I was beginning to sort of just lose the drive like as captain you've got to push people forward all the time to get better and I was beginning to think like the downsides of the job are starting to outweigh the the upsides. I'm. I'm missing my family. I'm missing my kids grow up, and yeah, I could play for another year or two, but I. I for what? Like it would have been for, for money, probably, and I, I just didn't want it to be like that. So, so yeah, I wanted to walk out on my own terms, and I had discussed it with Andy, but it, it was messy. Those those yeah. fine that final week or two was really messy. You know, it, it it wasn't the way I wanted to finish. But look, I mean, I've got no regrets. Play a hundred Test matches for my country tests. to have been involved in all those things we talked about already, and um, I never thought that I'd do anywhere near that amount. So I was, I felt very privileged. Um, and also, you know, I think it was funny when you when you get to the back end of your career, you increasingly start thinking about what's next and what is the next challenge for me and what else do I want to do with my life and whatever. And I was quite ready to to go to that next stage and of course it was to stay within cricket as well yeah so I mean I, I think I wanted to take a bit of time just you know to, uh, yeah I, I was going to do a bit of media and whatever but I, I just wanted to reacquaint myself with mm-hmm. my family a bit and just you know see my friends and just kind of write my book put mm-hmm. my career to bed and then mm-hmm. uh, start thinking about what's next and um, you know the, the opportunity to become director of cricket came up reasonably soon afterwards and although I was a little bit uneasy about jumping back into that world again I you know in 2015 England cricket was in a low ebb again I just felt like we'd gone backwards and I, I I just didn't feel like I could be on the sidelines working the media saying England should do this this or this if I wasn't willing to stand up and and have a crack myself. And yeah. so, you know, I, I'm really excited about mm. that opportunity to learn as well, because mm. you've got to learn so much more about sports administration and high performance and all that sort of stuff that doesn't involve just the business end on the pitch. And so that opportunity when that came along was, you know, I'm, I'm just so pleased I, I opted to take that opportunity.
2: And of course, uh, it did give you time that you didn't know at the time, more time, more positive, great time with your family, with Ruth and with Sam and Luca and you could be that family unit but for how short a time you didn't know at that stage.
1: No, I mean, look, you never know. I mean, ultimately, especially when you're in your sort of mid-30s or whatever, you just, you never think about your own mortality and you never think about how much time left you've got on this earth or that's just not something that creeps into your head. But, you know, in... In hindsight, those were incredibly important years. The 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 couple of years that I I took took out after finishing playing cricket for England, where you know we did a sort of four month sabbatical in Australia, took the kids out of school, and um, you know just created some really good memories as a family. And then, yeah, I mean getting back into cricket with the, the ECB that was more hands-on and, and a bit more stressful, but I wasn't travelling in the way that I used to, so it was a bit more of a normal sort mm-hmm. of family existence and uh very grateful for that time. Mm-hmm. We had.
2: And, and your rock, Ruth, of course, had helped you through that captaincy period with England and your touring as well. You couldn't have done that without uh-huh. her and there was much more of a, a better family environment for cricketers by that.
1: Extent. Yeah, exactly. And, I, you know, I think, you know i worked hard on that we worked hard on that to to make sure the players that the the players partners felt part of things and and it wasn't just the the players and the the families were excluded that you know we really wanted them to feel like they had an important role to play in all of that um and, and ruth was very strong on that but but you're absolutely right i mean i there is no no way i would have achieved anywhere near what i did in the game without ruth you know she was just such an incredibly positive presence for me she um she gave me that sort of outlet from cricket she challenged me to be you know a good dad to the boys and she was always always there for me regardless of whether i had a good day or a bad day and, uh, you know and again that sounds a bit cliche but god it's important you know when you when you're going out there and playing international sport you're putting on this mask aren't you and you're pretending that you're invulnerable mm. and that you're this sort of you know this impregnable fortress and you're going to go out and perform every day and then you take that mask off when you come home and actually you know all those insecurities or your frustrations or your your fears come out and that's why well, you need someone to be there for you and and ruth was phenomenal in that in that sense did you get
2: a hint before you found out that she was as ill as you thought
1: well i mean ruth's always been one of those people that were just very well like she she never suffered hangovers and stuff and she was always up at crack of dawn and loads of energy and so the the sort of the six months leading up to her diagnosis she was she was a bit tired, you know, she, she found it a bit harder to get out of bed. She had lots of aches and pains. I mean, she was still training. She was doing, like, a, a physical training course at the time. But she, it looked like it, she she looked a bit washed out. Um, and so I, I was worried that there was something wrong. And then, you know, she'd go to doctors for tests and this and then. They couldn't really get to the bottom of it. Um and then you know when the diagnosis actually came, she was really unwell, mm. uh, and she she really deteriorated badly. And uh, and little do we know, but you know she was she was seriously unwell and on the edge of dying. Actually, when we actually finally got the diagnosis through, okay. um, and then there's a sort of rush to find out what what she got, and and then what type of cancer she's got, and then what are the treatment options. And you know we went from a situation where probably three months earlier than her diagnosis you know Ruth was a little bit unwell but you'd never think there was anything wrong with her to you know we're sorry to inform you your wife's got cancer and it looks like it's stage four and it's going to be incurable and then we've got to find it seriously we need to find something right now otherwise we might lose her and so yeah thankfully she was diagnosed with this very rare form. Well, I say very rare form of lung cancer. I, I think that's probably the wrong way to describe it. It's a non-smoking lung cancer. So there's only sort of ten to fifteen percent of all cancer lung cancer sufferers get these types. Um, but it's still sort of five to seven thousand people a year. So it's a lot of people that get them. But we just we just never have thought that that's mm. what she would have had. And thankfully, there were some great treatment options that worked very quickly with her. But you know, a little bit like kind of sort of my innings after Napier like, I, I think we all felt like we've, we've got some bonus time here Absolutely. once we got our heads around the fact that look, th- this is reality for Ruth from now on like she's going to be on treatment and it's a sort of it's a battle between modern medicine and the cancer as to how long she's going to live you know just felt like we've got to embrace life and we've got to yeah. live and we've got to do things and we've got to travel and we've got to not f- worry about whether England are 50 for five at lunch, you know, that's the, in the greatest scheme of things, who cares? Mm. And so there's a real sort of newfound perspective for us and, and really a challenge to save every moment. And you, and you had a year? Yeah, I mean we were hoping for five mm. plus mm. and so you know the treatments didn't work as well as we were alike for Ruth, and you know we don't really know why that was the case. They all worked well, but not for long periods. Um, and what I'm grateful for is that for the vast majority of that year, Ruth was well. You know, she wasn't bedridden. Even you know, three days before she died, you know, we, we spent Christmas together, and she was out. And she was having a glass of champagne. She wasn't in the hospital. Um, so. You know, I think that that's really important for for me and the boys that uh, our memory of Ruth is Ruth being Ruth and you know full of life and vibrancy Absolutely. and everything. But of course, you know those those final days are, are very tough and just you know one thing Ruth wanted to do was to get it back to Australia to see her family. She, you know, we I think we we were cognizant that she was on a last line of treatment and it was you know it was certainly months rather than years. Um, we didn't realize it was going to happen as soon as it did. Um, but I think there was a big thing for Ruth as soon as she got home and she'd seen her family I think she felt like she'd held on long enough Mm -hmm. and yeah things happened very quickly but you know we were as prepared as we could be and I I think that was one thing that Ruth was just unbelievably brave about is you know she and I went and saw a child grief and loss counsellor and talked about her death you know and what had the conversations we needed to have amongst ourselves but also you know Mm -hmm. ask the counsellor about the boys and how best to support them and so Ruth felt that she'd prepared for the death and therefore she could live she could spend the rest of her days living she didn't have to worry about that and she knew that the boys and I would always have a great support there with um Jenny our counsellor um and that gave her A lot of peace in her heart actually because you know I mean she was just so worried about the boys understandably so and then yeah and then it happens and your life falls apart and you don't know where you're going and you're completely discombobulated and you know grief hits you in all sorts of different ways or doesn't hit you and you really feel like the sort of the life that you've lived up to that point those foundations that you have in place have all been knocked Mm -hmm. away and you have to figure out what your new life looks like.
2: Mm -hmm. I just would like
1: you to, if
2: you're able, just to talk just for a couple of minutes for those listening to this that perhaps are in that position that you were in when you and Ruth were still together and she was alive. And the practical side of things had to be sorted in one way as she was very good at it and also hanging on long enough to know she'd done enough for both Sam and a Luca to sort of help the three of you through after that and the many families are in this situation where they they don't quite know what to do
1: yeah well i think that just a few things number one like you know unfortunately if you've got a an incurable disease or life-limiting disease whichever way you want to put it then there's a slow realization that you know we none of us know when your life's going to come to an end but that it's ha- It's going to happen and so you can you got two choices you can either stick your head in the sand and pretend it's not going to happen or you can do what Ruth did which is kind of go right I I want to prepare for what's to come I want to feel prepared I want to feel like there's the right sort of support structure there for Andy and the boys and then I can relax and enjoy the rest of my life and who knows how long that might be and and so you know I would always encourage people to try and do that however hard it is and and to try and you know, I, I think that the best conversations that Ruth and I had about death were when Jenny, our counsellor, was in the room because it's a, it's a hard com- conversation, a hard topic to talk about. And Jenny had been through it f- for forty years; was brilliant in that. And then, um, you know, Jenny just gave a, gave me and the boys some really good practical advice. So, so she, you know, she, she 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 worked through me with the boys, just in mm-hmm. terms of, you know, when you when you lose a mum. Uh, these are the things you, sh- you should try and do you know you should try and keep your routine the same as much as you can um, you should keep yourself surrounded by people that love you and support you to so the boys realize that although mum's not there there's a big group of people that's still there to support them and that they should keep doing things that they that they love and that it gives them a feeling of positivity so you know it's very easy to sort of Withdraw away and and she would always argue you 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 just got to give them that sort of help and support and then also give yourself an excuse to she was massive and i think this is a really important point that you can't force the kids to talk about it and that the kids may not want to talk about it but what you need to do is give them permission to talk about it by saying to them like you know i had a bad day today i was really missing mom was uh, you know what i was really angry about Cancer, like it just really frustrated, actually got to me today, and I was weeping and whatever. And the boys would sort of give me a little tap on the shoulder and walk off. But what I was saying to them is, if you're ever feeling this, then it's okay to talk about it. um And I, I think just my general observation, the more I think about it, the more I'm absolutely certain about it. We're just terrible with death. We just don't talk about it. Like it's going to happen to all of us, it's going to happen to those that we love. You think about, you know, antenatal classes before people have a baby, all this preparation you go through for a massive change in your life and with death you have nothing. And in fact people go, Oh, I don't want to talk about it like that. Let them do it on their own because it's their own grief and whatever. Well, we've got to be better than that. You know, we've got to be much more open about it. We've got to be less worried about saying the wrong thing and more able to connect with people that are going through it. You you know, you don't you don't have to you don't have to be a counselling service for people, but I think you've got to be able to to have empathy for them and to, for them to know that you're there with them. And that's as much as you can offer, I think.
2: Sir Andrew Strauss, thank you for opening up with your Sporting Life.
1: For us. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening
2: to Talk Sports, My Sporting Life with me, Mark Saggers. Thanks for listening. And make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast and Spotify for more top
0: TalkSport content.